When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, titled The Pride of the Yankees, is from our Legends series and tells the story of one of the greatest baseball players that ever took the field, Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig, who played for the Yankees for 17 years until his career was tragically cut short by a neuromuscular disease called ALS, was nicknamed the Iron Horse due to his endurance and strength, which allowed him to play in 2,130 consecutive games despite numerous fractures, muscle spasms, knockdowns, and knockouts at the plate. His lifetime batting average was 340, 15th highest of all time and his on-base percentage was an astounding 441 lifetime. One of the best movies I've ever seen, and one of the few I have watched more than twice, is The Pride of the Yankees, starring Gary Cooper. It puts a lump in my throat every time I watch it. It details Gehrig's life growing up in a poor German immigrant family in New York, his rise to baseball stardom, and how that affected his wife and family and his fight against a crippling disease that ended his ability to play earlier in his career than he had hoped. Most of all, the movie portrays Lou Gehrig as he was, a humble, quiet man who loved his family and loved baseball. And he had a sense of humor. When historian Fred Lieb asked him what it's like playing in Babe Ruth's shadow, Gehrig quipped, it's a pretty big shadow. It gives me lots of room to spread myself. Thank you for joining us. 1001 Heroes is now listened to in over 200 countries on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website at 1001storiespodcast.com. And stop by facebook.com slash 1001heroes and give us a page like. We get a lot of comments daily on our shows, and it's a great way to find out what's coming next. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Gehrig was born at 309 East 94th Street in the Yorkville neighborhood of Manhattan, weighing almost 14 pounds at birth. He was the second child out of four to German immigrants. His father, Heinrich, was a sheet metal worker by trade, but frequently unemployed due to alcohol, and his mother, Christina, was a maid. 
the main breadwinner and disciplinarian in the family. His two sisters died from whooping cough and measles at an early age. His brother also died in infancy, leaving Lou as the only surviving child. Young Garrick helped his mother with her work, doing tasks such as folding laundry and picking up supplies from the local stores. In 1910, Garrick lived with his parents at 2266 Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. Garrick first garnered national attention for his baseball ability while playing in a game at Cuggs Park, now Wrigley Field, on June 26, 1920. Garrick's New York School of Commerce team was playing a team from Chicago's Lane Tech High School in front of a crowd of more than 10,000 spectators. With his team winning 8-6 in the top of the ninth, Garrick hit a grand slam completely out of the Major League Park, an unheard of feat for a 17-year-old. Garrick attended PS 132 in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan, then went to Commerce High School, graduating in 1921. Initially, Garrick went on to Columbia to a football scholarship, where he was preparing to pursue a degree in engineering. However, before his first semester, under the influence of New York Giants manager John McGraw, he was advised to play on a summer professional baseball team under a false name, Henry Lewis, despite the fact that it could jeopardize his collegiate sports eligibility. After only a dozen games played for the Hartford Senators in the Eastern League, he was discovered and then banned from collegiate sports his freshman year. In 1922, Gehrig returned to the collegiate sport atmosphere where he was a talented fullback for the Lions football program. Later, in 1923, he would play first base and pitch for Columbia. On April 18, 1923, the same day that Yankee Stadium opened for the first time and Babe Ruth inaugurated the new stadium with a home run, Columbia pitcher Gehrig struck out 17 Williams College batters to set a team record. However, Columbia lost the game. Only a handful of collegians were at Southfield that day, but more significant was the presence of Yankee scout Paul Critchell, who had been trailing Garrick for some time. It wasn't Garrick's pitching that particularly impressed him. Rather, it was Garrick's powerful left-handed hitting. During the time Critchell had been observing the young Columbia ball player, Garrick had hit some of the longest home runs ever seen on various Eastern campuses, including a 450-foot home run on April 28th at Columbia Southfield, which landed at 116th Street and Broadway. Within two months, Garrick signed a Yankee contract. There's a great scene in the movie Pride of the Yankees when Garrick tells his mother and father he had been drafted by the Yankees. They were not too happy with him spending his time playing baseball and wanted him to get into engineering. The football scholarship to Columbia was supposed to be his ticket to an education and a real job. Then he placed the $1,500 bonus check that he received for signing with the Yankees on the table in front of his mom. The next thing you know, she'd become a huge Yankees fan and baseball wasn't so bad after all. Garrick returned to minor league Hartford to play parts of two seasons, 1923 and 24, batting 344 and hitting 61 home runs in 193 games. It was the only time Garrick had ever played any level of baseball, Sandlot, high school, collegiate, or pro for a team based outside New York City. Garrick first appeared with the Bronx Bombers late in the 1923 season at a time when Babe Ruth and America were roaring. In 25, when Garrick joined the Sultan of Swat as a regular, opponents braced for what would become the most feared back-to-back -back hitting combination to this day. 
The Yanks were the first pro sports team to wear jersey numbers, making it easier for broadcasters to identify, and the numbers represented their spot in the batting order. Ruth was number three, and Gehrig was number four. Yankees manager Miller Huggins walked Gehrig out toward the batting cage on the rookie's first day in the show, and Gehrig had not brought along a favorite bat of his own on that nickel subway ride to the stadium. So he innocently picked one out from a bunch of bats that were resting against the cage. Unbeknownst to Lou, it was the Babe's favorite, all 48 ounces of it. Gehrig used that bat to whack baseball pitch after pitch into the bleachers, traditionally only Ruth's area of reach. Ruth might have told anyone else to leave that bat alone. All he said to the rookie that day was, Hiya, kid. Ruth was the flamboyant slugger, basking in the spotlight and living life hard as he belted fastballs. Gehrig was the model of consistency around the clock. He had slashing power, spraying homers to all fields, and he was only happy to work in a relative shadow. Consider what happened at the 1932 World Series in Chicago. Ruth hit his called shot homer there off Cubs pitcher Charlie Root, and the legend has only grown over time. Does anyone remember that Gehrig proceeded to homer off Root in the next at-bat while Wrigley was buzzing, or that Ruth and Gehrig already had gone deep together earlier in the same game? In his 1990 biography, Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig in his time, Ray Robinson called them the odd couple. He wrote, there was just too much difference in temperament and character for a firm bond of friendship to have formed. But certainly, there was mutual respect, and right from the start. There was room for both in the Yankee lineup, and room for both in great major league lore. There always still seemed to be runs to drive in. That's one of the amazing things about Gary's career numbers. He hit behind Ruth, and later, Joe DiMaggio, two fabulous base cleaners. And yet, his RBI numbers were consistently through the roof. Gehrig drove in 184 runs in 1931, still an American League record. In 1927, Gehrig put up one of his greatest seasons by any batter in history, hitting 373 with 218 hits, 52 doubles, 18 triples, 47 home runs, a then record 175 runs batted in, surpassing teammate Babe Ruth's 171 six years earlier and a 765 slugging percentage. His 117 extra base hits that season are second all-time to Babe Ruth's 119 extra base hits in 1921, and his 447 total bases are third all-time after Babe Ruth's 457 total bases in 1921 and Rogers Hornsby's 450 in 1922. Gehrig's production helped the 1927 Yankees to a 110 games won, 44 games lost record, the AL pennant, and a four-game sweep of the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1927 World Series. Although the AL recognized his season by naming him league MVP, it was overshadowed by Babe Ruth's 60-home run season and the overall dominance of the 1927 Yankees, a team often cited as having the greatest lineups of all time, the famed Murderer's Row. Murderer's Row was the nickname given to the New York Yankees baseball team of 1927 and beyond. Widely considered one of the best teams in history. The nickname is particular in describing the first six hitters in the 1927 team lineup. Earl Combs, Mark Koenig, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Bob Musil, and Tony Lazeri. 
Despite playing in the shadow of the larger-than-life Ruth for two-thirds of his career, Gehrig was one of the highest-run producers in baseball history. He had 509 RBIs during a three-season stretch, 1930 through 1932. Only two other players, Jimmy Fox with 507 and Hank Greenberg with 503, have surpassed 500 RBIs in any three seasons. Their totals were non-consecutive. Babe Ruth had 498. Playing 14 complete seasons, Gehrig had 13 consecutive seasons with 100 or more RBIs, a major league record shared with Fox until eclipsed in 2010 by Alex Rodriguez. Gehrig had six seasons where he batted 350 or better with a high of 379 in 1930, plus a seventh season at 349. He had seven seasons with 150 more RBIs, 11 seasons with over 100 walks, eight seasons with 200 or more hits, and five seasons with more than 40 home runs. Gehrig led the American League in runs scored four times, home runs three times, and RBIs five times. His 184 RBIs in 1931 remain the American League record as of 2010 and rank second all-time to Hack Wilson's 191 RBIs in 1930. On the single-season RBI list, Gehrig ranks second, fifth, and sixth with four additional seasons over 150 RBIs. He also holds the baseball record for most seasons with 400 total bases or more, accomplishing this feat five times in his career. He batted fourth in the lineup to Roots, third in the order, making it impractical to give up an intentional walk to Ruth. In a few instances, Gehrig managed to keep the streak intact through pinch-hitting appearances and fortuitous timing. In others, the streak continued despite injuries. For example, on April 23, 1933, a pitch by Washington Senators pitcher Earl Whitehill struck Gehrig in the head. Although almost knocked unconscious, Gehrig remained in the game. On June 14, 1933, Gehrig was ejected from a game along with manager Joe McCarthy, but he had already been at bat and received credit for playing the game. In June 34, an exhibition game, Gehrig was hit by a pitch just above the right eye and knocked unconscious. According to news reports, he was out for five minutes. Helmets were not heavily introduced until the 40s. He left the game, but was in the lineup the next day. On July 13, 1934, Gehrig suffered a lumbago attack and had to be assisted off the field. In the next day's away game, he was listed in the lineup as shortstop, batting leadoff. In his first and only plate appearance, he singled and was promptly replaced by a pinch runner to rest his throbbing back, never taking the field. A&E's biography speculated that this illness, which he also described as a cold in his back, might have been the first symptom of his oncoming debilitating disease. In addition, x-rays taken late in his life disclosed that Gehrig had sustained several fractures during his playing career, although he remained in the lineup despite these previously undisclosed injuries. Gehrig's record of 2,130 consecutive games played stood until September 6, 1995, when Baltimore Orioles shortstop Cal Ripken Jr., another class act, broke it. There has been a lot of talk about the feud between Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. In 1927, both of them were dominating headlines in a way that no two players had ever done before. That year, Ruth hit 60 homers, breaking his old record of 59, and Gehrig clouded 47, more than anyone other than Ruth had ever hit. 
As late as August 10th, Gehrig had more homers than the Babe, but Ruth was a great closer. The two of them out-homered every team in baseball, save one that year. The Yanks won the pennant that year by 19 games over the A's and then swept the Pirates in the World Series. Ruth wasn't eligible for the MVP award because he had won it the year before, so it went to Gehrig. In the next few years, Ruth's domination as a power hitter was slipping, and Gehrig began to take his place. On June 3, 1932, Gehrig became the first American player to hit four home runs in one game. After Gehrig's three homer in a game against Philadelphia, an irritated Connie Mack removed pitcher George Earnshaw and demanded he stay with him to watch relief pitcher Roy Mahaffey pitch to Gehrig. Gehrig then slammed his fourth homer to left field. On his fifth at-bat, only a great catch by outfielder Al Simmons kept Gehrig from hitting five in the same game. The tension was heating up between Ruth and Gehrig, mainly due to Ruth's ego. On a barnstorming trip to Japan, the civil relationship between the two boiled over, apparently over a comment that Gehrig's mother had made about how Ruth's daughter dressed. Uh-oh, them's fighting words. Ruth sent word to Gehrig that he never wanted to speak to him off the field again, and the two never traded words until Gehrig's Appreciation Day, which came six years later. The Yanks had some off years in 34 and 35, but recaptured the title in 36. For the next two years, Joe DiMaggio and Lou Gehrig would dominate the league in the same way that Ruth and Gehrig had, and the New York Yankees began a four-season dynasty that included winning four World Series. In 1936, Gehrig led the league in home runs and runs scored. In 1938, Lou Gehrig's world began to crumble around him. Although his performance in the second half of the 1938 season was slightly better than in the first half, Gehrig reported physical changes at that midway point. At the end of that season, he said, I tired midseason, I don't know why, but I just couldn't get going again. Although his final 1938 statistics were above average, a 295 batting average, 114 RBIs, 170 hits, 523 slugging percentage, 689 plate appearances with only 75 strikeouts, and 29 home runs, they were significantly down from his 1937 season, in which he had batted 351 and slugged 643. In the 1938 World Series, he had four hits and 14 at-bats, all singles. When the Yankees began their 1939 spring training in St. Petersburg, Florida, it was clear that Gehrig no longer possessed his once formidable power. Even Gehrig's base running was affected, and at one point he collapsed at Al Lang Field, then the Yankees' spring training park. By the end of spring training, Gehrig had not hit a home run. Throughout his career, Gehrig was considered an excellent base runner, but as the 1939 season got underway, his coordination and speed had deteriorated significantly. By the end of April, his statistics were the worst of his career, with one RBI and a 143 batting average. Fans and the press openly speculated on Gehrig's abrupt decline. James Kahn, a reporter who wrote often about Gehrig, said in one article, I think there's something wrong with him. Physically wrong, I mean. I don't know what it is, but I am satisfied that it goes far beyond his ball playing. I've seen ball players go overnight, as Gehrig seems to have done. They were simply washed up as ball players. 
It's something deeper than that in this case, though I've watched him very closely, and this is what I've seen. I've seen him time a ball perfectly, swing on it as hard as he can, meet it squarely, but drive a soft, looping fly over the infield. In other words, for some reason, I do not know his old power isn't there. He's meeting the ball time after time, but it isn't going anywhere. He was indeed meeting the ball with only one strikeout and 28 at-bats. However, Joe McCarthy found himself resisting pressure from Yankee management to switch Garrick to a part-time role. Things came to a head when Garrick had to struggle to make a routine put-out at first base. The pitcher, Johnny Murphy, had to wait for Garrick to drag himself over to the bag so he could field the throw. Murphy said, Nice play, Lou. On April 30th, Garrick went hitless against the Washington Senators. Garrick had just played his 2,130th consecutive Major League game. On May 2nd, the next game after a day off, Garrick approached McCarthy before the game in Detroit against the Tigers and said, I'm benching myself, Joe, telling the Yankee skipper that he was doing so for the good of the team. McCarthy acquiesced, putting Ellsworth, Babe Dahlgren in at first base, and also said that whenever Garrick wanted to play again, the position was his. Garrick himself took the lineup card out to the shock umpires before the game, ending the 14-year streak. Before the game began, the Briggs Stadium announcer told the fans, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the first time Lou Gehrig's name will not appear on the Yankee lineup in 2,130 consecutive games. The Detroit Tigers fans gave Gehrig a standing ovation while he sat on the bench with tears in his eyes. A wire service photograph of Gehrig reclining against the dugout steps with a stoic expression appeared the next day in the nation's newspapers. Gehrig stayed with the Yankees as team captain for the rest of the season, but never played in a major league game again. As Lou Gehrig's debilitation became steadily worse, his wife, Eleanor, called the famed Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Her call was transferred to Charles William Mayo, who had been following Gehrig's career and his mysterious loss of strength. Mayo told Eleanor to bring Gehrig as soon as possible. Gehrig flew alone to Rochester from Chicago, where the Yankees were playing at the time, arriving at the Mayo Clinic on June 13, 1939. After six days of extensive testing at the Mayo, the diagnosis of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, was confirmed on June 19th, Gehrig's 36th birthday. The prognosis was grim. Rapidly increasing paralysis, difficulty in swallowing and speaking, and a life expectancy of less than three years, although there would be no impairment of mental functions. Eleanor Gehrig was told that the cause of ALS was unknown, but it was painless non-contagious, and cruel. The motor function of the central nervous system is destroyed, but the mind remains fully aware to the end. He often wrote letters to Eleanor, and in one such note written shortly afterwards said, Eleanor, the bad news is lateral sclerosis, in our language, chronic infantile paralysis. There isn't any cure. There are very few of these cases. It is probably caused by some germ. Never heard of transmitting it to my mates. There's a 50-50 chance of keeping me as I am. I may need a cane in 10 or 15 years. Plane is out of the question. Following Gehrig's visit to the Mayo Clinic, he briefly rejoined the Yanks in Washington, D.C. As his train pulled into Union Station, he was greeted by a group of Boy Scouts happily waving and wishing him luck. Gehrig waved back, but he leaned forward to his companion, a reporter, and said, They're wishing me luck, and I'm dying. 
According to the official website of Lou Gehrig in 1939, sports writer Paul Gallico suggested that the Yankees host a recognition day to honor Gehrig on July 4th. There were more than 62,000 fans in attendance as Gehrig stood on the field at Yankee Stadium with the 1927 and 1939 Yankees. In its coverage the following day, the New York Times said it was perhaps as colorful and dramatic a pageant as ever was enacted on a baseball field as 61,808 fans thundered a hail and a farewell. Dignitaries extolled the dying slugger and the members of the 1927 Yankees World Series team known as Murderer's Row attended the ceremonies. New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia called Gehrig the greatest prototype of good sportsmanship and citizenship and Postmaster General James Farley concluded his speech by predicting for generations to come boys who play baseball will point with pride to your record. Yankees manager Joe McCarthy, struggling to control his emotions, then spoke of Lou Gehrig, with whom he had a close, almost father and son-like bond. After describing Gehrig as the finest example of a ball player, sportsman, and citizen that baseball has ever known, McCarthy couldn't stand it any longer. Turning tearfully to Gehrig, the manager said, Lou, what else can I say, except that it was a sad day in the life of everybody who knew you when you came into my hotel room that day in Detroit told me you were quitting as a ball player because you felt yourself a hindrance to the team. My God, man, you were never that. He fought back tears of overwhelming emotion and began to speak his immortal words of thanks, calling himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. It was one of the most poignant, emotional moments in the history of American sports, and there wasn't a dry eye left in the stadium. At the close of the speech, Babe Ruth walked up and put his arm around his former teammate. His entire speech was never captured on audio, only the beginning and the end. In Pride of the Yankees, Gary Cooper gives the entire speech. We're playing both for you next, here. walking on ball fields for 16 years and I've never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. I have had the great honor to have played with these great veteran ball players on my left Murderers Row, our championship team of 1927. I have had the further honor of living with and playing with these men on my right, the Bronx Bombers, the Yankees of today. I have been given fame an undeserved praise by the boys up there behind the wire in the press box. My friends, the sports writer. I have worked under the two greatest managers of all time, 
Miller Huggins, and Joe McCarthy. I have a mother and father who fought to give me help. I have a wife, a companion for life, who has shown me more courage than I have been. People all say that I've had a bad break. But today, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. The Yankees retired Gehrig's uniform number four, making him the first player in Major League Baseball history to be accorded that honor. Gehrig was given many gifts, commemorative plaques and trophies. Some came from VIPs. Others came from the stadium's groundskeepers and janitorial staff. Footage of the ceremony shows Gehrig being handed various gifts and immediately setting them down on the ground because he no longer had the arm strength to hold them. The Yankees gave him a silver trophy with their signatures engraved on it. Inscribed on the front was a special poem written by the New York Times writer John Kieran. The inscription on the trophy presented to Gehrig from his Yankee teammates went like this. We've been to the wars together, took our foes as they came, and always you were the leader, and ever you played the game. Idol of cheering millions, records are yours by sheaves. Iron of frame they hailed you, decked you with laurel leaves. But higher than that, we hold you, we who have known you best, knowing the way you came through every human test. Let this be a silent token of lasting friendship's gleam and all that we've left unspoken, your pals of the Yankees team. The trophy cost maybe five bucks but he became one of Gehrig's most prized possessions. It's currently on display at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. On October of 39, he accepted Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia's appointment to a 10-year term as a New York City Parole Commissioner and was sworn into office on January 2, 1940. The Parole Commission commended the ex-ball player for his firm belief in parole, properly administered, stating that Garrick indicated he accepted the parole post because it represented an opportunity for public service. He had rejected other job offers, including lucrative speaking and guest appearance opportunities worth far more financially than the $5,700 a year commissionership. Garrick visited New York City's correctional facilities, but insisted that the visits not be covered by news media. Garrick, as always, quietly and efficiently performed his duties. He was often helped by his wife, Eleanor, who would guide his hand when he had to sign official documents. About a month before his death, when Garrick reached the point where his deteriorating physical condition made it impossible for him to continue in the job, he quietly resigned. On June 2nd, 1941, at 10.10 p.m., 16 years to the day after he replaced Wally Pipp at first base, and less than two years after his retirement from baseball, Lou Gehrig died at his home at 5204 Delafield Avenue in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. Upon hearing the news, Babe Ruth and his wife Claire went to the Gehrig house to console Eleanor. 
Mayor LaGuardia ordered flags in New York to be flown at half-staff, and Major League ballparks around the nation did likewise. Following the funeral at Christ Episcopal Church of Riverdale, Gehrig's remains were cremated and interred on June 4th at Kensico Cemetery in Valhalla, New York. Lou Gehrig and Ed Barrow were both interred in the same section of Kensico, which is next door to the Gate of Heaven Cemetery, where the graves of Babe Ruth and Billy Martin are both located in Section 25. The Gehrigs had no children. Eleanor, who never remarried, dedicated the remainder of her life to supporting ALS research. She died 43 years after Lou on March 6, 1984, on her 80th birthday, and was interred with him in Conseco Cemetery. The Yankees dedicated a monument to Gehrig at center field at Yankee Stadium on July 6, 1941, the shrine lauding him as a man, a gentleman, and a great ball player whose amazing record of 2,130 consecutive games should stand for all time. Gehrig's monument joined the one placed there in 1932 to Miller Huggins, which would eventually be followed by Bray Bruce in 1949. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We invite you to join us at facebook.com slash 1001heroes to join us in the pre-show conversations and photo sharings and at our website where we house all our episodes for your enjoyment at 1001storiespodcast.com. A special reminder to all our listeners that May is the month we remember Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS. This year, the ALS Association is celebrating the tremendous awareness generated from last summer's ALS Ice Bucket Challenge and the incredible impact it had on the fight against this disease. To continue this momentum, the association is encouraging the 17 million people who uploaded videos to social media to continue to go beyond the bucket and challenge ALS this May to participate, advocate, or donate. According to Google, last August, more people searched for information about ALS than in the entire last decade. The ALS Association is grateful not only for the increased awareness about the disease, but also for the $115 million in donations. Progress on how the association is putting these dollars to work and the path for you to make the donation can be found at www.alsa.org. That's www.alsa.org. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for.